0: you have your Bibles, please grab them. Uh, Turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 18 and 19. James chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you have allowed us this time to come together to Worship you through the hearing of your word. May your spirit be present in our gathering as we know it is. That it would convict hearts, that it would regenerate hearts that are dead, that it would sanctify those who are yours. We pray that Christ would be magnified, your word would be exalted, that you would be known. So I pray these things now in his name. Amen. James chapter 2, verses 18 and 19 reads, But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Titled this sermon, What Use Is It? And this is part two. Next week will be part three and then we'll be done with chapter 2. But this is an important section within the letter that James writes to these dispersed Jewish Christians who are facing persecution. They're a young church. They've been attacked, and now they've been dispersed. Where is their faith at? James sends this letter to encourage them, to teach them how to live as Christians amidst the world that they live in, the fallen world, the, the sins that are around them, and even addresses their own hearts. That, that's what matters to God, our hearts. From our hearts flow our... Our words and our actions and our thoughts. So James wants us to focus on Christ, focus on the gospel that saved us, and to live in a way that reflects that, that represents God and Christ in this world in a way that would honor and glorify him. And this has to do with growing into Christian maturity. How by the grace and mercy of God, therefore sanctified? How do we grow into Christ-likeness? How do we become spiritually strengthened to look more like Christ in our words and our actions? And so James does spend a good amount of time Specifically in verses 14 down to verse 26 Teaching us about Works and faith And faith and works And we have to get this right We absolutely have to understand What James is saying here I know we just heard from Paul in Romans 11 And Paul also presents His understanding and his arguments For faith and works And what we need to know is that James and Paul they're not contradicting one another. They're complementing one another. They're approaching the, the topic of salvation and sanctification from different angles, but they're saying the same thing. They're complementing one another. And if you have an improper understanding of one or the other, then it's going to affect how you live. It's going to affect how you think. It's going to affect whether you're going to grow into Christ-likeness or not. And so they're not saying different things. They're, in fact, saying the very same things. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is a fact. God does all of the work in salvation. What James is saying is that based upon that truth, that saving faith will be evidenced by how you live. It will be demonstrated. It will be lived out. That truth that saved you, the mercy of God, the love of God will be shown in how you live. You will display the love of God to those around you in your worship to God, in your Pursuit of holiness and your turning from sin and your repentance and your confession and your desire to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to God. So they're saying the same thing; they're complementing each other and giving us a full understanding of salvation and sanctification. And so, this is part two of that. What use is it? What use is it? James, last verses fourteen to seven, talked about a useless faith, a faith that is without works is dead, being by itself, verse 17. And so with that in mind, what use is it when we consider verses 18 and 19? So if you were to ask my girls, I have two, young, ages five, and if you were to ask them if they believe in God, they would say yes. If you were to ask them if they believe in Jesus, they would say yes. If you were to ask if they believe the Bible is true, they would again, in the affirmative, say yes. Do you believe the gospel? Again, yes and yes. They believe that Jesus died for their sins. Yes, of course. I've been taught that. I've seen the storybook Bible. That's what it says. That's what my parents say. That's what they say at church. All of this is true. I believe it. Now, as parents, Hannah and I acknowledge that. We're, we're overjoyed. We're, we rejoice in the fact that they're not rejecting it. But at the same time, we continually go over the gospel. We continue to go over what a a life in Christ looks like. We we acknowledge it, and then we continue to give them more instruction from God's word, teaching them about the gospel. It's it's a life of repentance. It's a pursuit of holiness. Are, Are you seeing those things in your life? Is it being demonstrated? And so you can profess, you can confess, you can say with your mouth that you believe certain truths about scripture that are true and right and good, But at the same time, we have to also look at not just the the faith in saying that, but the faith without the works, meaning a faith that doesn't demonstrate that you actually believe those things to be true and now you're living in light of it, is a useless faith. Now I'm not commenting on on their faith being useless or dead. I'm just affirming that you can believe certain things and acknowledging those things and continuing to encourage and, and give instruction in the Word, meaning that we must provide... The whole counsel of god when it comes to the gospel and salvation We cannot just say You believe the gospel you say you believe the gospel you're a christian saved always saved Yes, that is true. If you're genuinely saved if you have a saving faith that demonstrates the works of uh, The the fruit of good works in your life that that are in keeping with repentance So we have to give the whole counsel of god. Yes saved by faith alone but also The other part of that Saving faith will never be alone It will be lived out. It will be demonstrated by good works. So we must present both of those aspects of faith, saving faith and works that demonstrate and validate that saving faith so that they know the full counsel of God because either of those could lead to a dangerous uh, life of thinking that they're saved when they're not. Uh, Living a life that's purely grace-based without looking to the obedience to Christ. They don't see Christ as their Lord. They don't see Christ as the one who they need to obey. The other side of that is living in a way that you think you need to continually do all these things to be saved, that you're saved by works and that you keep your salvation by works. So we want to avoid both of those things. We want to teach the whole counsel of God and what it says about you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but also that faith will never be alone. Faith is demonstrated through a changed life, a transformed heart that desires and loves and To please God and obey his word and will. So we don't want to provide a false assurance. And we also do not want to discredit what they're saying. Again, we have to present the whole counsel of God. We have to present the whole counsel of God. And I believe that this understanding of faith and works in salvation and sanctification, again, can either lead to legalism or the notion that we're free to live however we want now. No obedience. And I believe this is why the state of The church, the state of evangelicalism is where it is today because they've been taught poorly on the gospel, on the understanding of faith and works. Maybe they're only listening to part of Paul's teaching and not listening to James, or they're only listening to James and not listening to Paul. But We must put those things together. Those two truths must be complemented, and they are in Scripture. So what percentage of people do you think would say that they are Christians, even if they don't bear fruit in keeping repentance or display a life that is being transformed? What percentage? They might've grew up in a Christian home or attended church or even do attend church. They went to Christian camps, even mission trips. They have a knowledge of scripture. Maybe they even read through in the Bible multiple times. May even be effective evangelists. Think about that. They can tell other people how to follow Christ, but they themselves are not following Christ. They know lots of things about Christ and they can point you to Christ, but they're not living a life that's showing that they themselves believe and follow Christ themselves. Remember that Judas was there with Jesus during his ministry. He heard all the teachings. He heard all the sermons. He saw all the miracles, which were signs to point to the deity of Christ, that he is God that he can save them and has the authority and power to do so because he is God. That they were to recognize because of his power and his signs and miracles who Jesus is, their Lord and Savior. And so even Judas saw all these things, was around all these things, could teach others these things. But yet he remained unconverted. Large crowds followed Jesus during his ministry, but again, it was more for the signs and healing than for their recognition that they need a savior from their sins so in this section in james he's instructing us on faith and works in relation to the christian life and not in relation to how someone is saved sinners are justified by faith alone in christ alone but faith will never be alone i can't say that enough it will always be accompanied by good works It will always be accompanied by good works. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Saved through faith, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're saved through faith in Christ alone, not as a result of works, for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We would live in them. We would live according to them. That would be a pattern of our lives and a practice of our lives. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 state both of those truths. We're saved through faith alone, not as a result of works. But now that we've been saved, our life will be a demonstration of good works that God prepared beforehand that we would live in them. It would be shown through our actions and our words and how we we treat others and, and view and think about this world. So we are justified by faith alone. But it is our works that justify or prove our faith. We'll look at that next week. Verse 24 is, could be confusing to a lot of people, but that's exactly what it says. James is not arguing that works must be added to faith, but rather that a genuine saving faith will be characterized by works. A genuine saving faith will be characterized by works. James knew this very well. Being the half-brother of Jesus, he was well acquainted with his teachings and saw the visible proof of it in his Lord's life through his obedience and love to do his Father's will. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 16-20, Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Jesus, in a summarizing statement in John chapter 15, verse 8, says, My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. In the words of James, he says, chapter 2, verse 17, which we looked at last week, Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Verse 20, but you are, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Again, James in verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Saving faith is more than just words. It's more than just words. It involves Your words, what you say, what you profess, what you confess, and it also involves your works, what you do, how you live it out, how you display it, you validate it. You validate a saving faith through your works that have been prepared beforehand by God so that you would walk in them in obedience to him. This is worship. Wherever there is the root of saving faith, there will always be its fruit. Wherever there is the root of saving faith, there will always be its fruit. Saving faith produces good works. That's the bottom line. A good tree bears good fruit. True saving faith will always be accompanied by good works that verify the validity of that faith and prove that it is indeed real and saving. Real and saving. Real faith is a faith that works. It's living, it's active, and it responds in obedience to God. Living faith is an active faith that responds in obedience to God. A living faith will be evidenced and demonstrated by a holy life, a life of willful conformity to God's word and will displayed through a love for righteousness, the things that God loves according to his word, and a hatred for sin, the things that displease God and dishonor God. So a holy life is a love for righteousness and a hatred of sin. And a saving, active, living faith will demonstrate that. Genuine faith works is the the theme of James. A genuine faith works in the sense that it bears fruit. It makes itself known through our words and our actions. And this entire letter emphasizes that. James is making it clear over and over and over again. James wants to help believers to walk wholeheartedly in devotion to God, in wisdom, in obedience to him. That is what will help the believer grow into Christian maturity. That is how the believer will be matured as a a christian will become more like christ is through god's wisdom and obedience to his word so james calls all christians to live a life that demonstrates saving faith marked by godly behavior because of a love for god and therefore a love for others how you treat others james spent the beginning half of chapter two talking about that very thing the sin of showing partiality how you treat others based upon external appearance how you receive the face and that led to dishonoring of the poor neglecting their needs and exalting those who are oppressing them It's counter to what god wants and it leads to behaviors that are displeasing to god. You make yourself a judge with evil motives and so this is to be This this life marked by godly behavior because of a love for god is to be our lifestyle is to be our conviction A love for god is seen in our obedience to his word and to his will and so we are to remain entirely loyal to the Lord by obeying his word, by knowing his word and by obeying his word, by putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, the sin that was talked about. By following the wisdom from above, which he'll talk about in chapter three, by displaying pure and undefiled religion, by fulfilling the royal law of love, by living according to the law of liberty rather than to compromise our loyalty by an inconsistent lifestyle, which will manifest the influence of worldly wisdom, listening to the world more than you listen to God, blaming God when you're tempted, doubting God when trials come, not receiving the word implanted in humility, living a life characterized by showing partiality and thereby being deceived about your spiritual status. This is a pattern of your life. Basic to all that James says in his letters is his concern that his readers stop compromising, that they stop compromising with worldly values and behavior and to give themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord by living holy lives and growing into Christian maturity. This is the Christian life, this pursuit of holiness, this pursuit of sanctification, which is really a pursuit of Christ. And this is worship to him. This is what glorifies God. And so the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, He says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on, so that I may lay hold of that which for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, again I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul there is focusing on sanctification. We are to press on in our sanctification of the pursuit of holiness, pursuit of Christ-likeness. He says, I haven't obtained it yet. And so he works. He's diligent. He's laboring. He's striving. He's agonizing towards becoming more like Christ. This is what we are to do. Press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. This is what Paul does with his entire life and being. Forgetting what lies behind, maybe past sins and failures that are holding you down. Forget that. Don't allow those things to hinder your walk with God. Confess, repent, move on. Understand the grace of God, the forgiveness that's given, the cleansing that happens because of the Spirit and the Word. Forgetting what lies behind. That even means the positive things. The, I went to a Christian camp. I went on a missions trip. I helped this lady with her groceries. Forgetting what lies behind. Reaching forward. Continuing to walk in obedience and righteousness according to God's word. This pursuit of holiness. This pursuit of righteousness. Reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on. I continue. I walk forward. I progress in my growth. Toward the goal. The goal is the sanctification of the believer. The goal is to become more like Christ. Conformity into his image. That is the good of the believer who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. All the way until we're glorified. That is what we are to do. Press on in this pursuit of holiness. And So do you have a, a changing life? Are you pursuing Christ likeness? Are you being obedient to God's word? Remember that obedience is the fruit of faith. Obedience is the fruit of faith. It's not the root. You, you don't work for your salvation again. We don't obey to be saved. We obey out of a love because we have been saved by Christ for the purpose of being conformed into his glorious image. So that so that is the very goal that we pursue for his glory. We've been saved to become like Christ and so we pursue Christ likeness in the process of sanctification and here james will continue to make his argument that faith works faith is demonstrated faith is lived out in these verses james makes clear what real faith is and is not so that we would know and understand the proper relationship between faith and works so can you separate faith and works this is the answer the question that james will answer for us can you separate faith and works And can faith be defined simply by a confessional affirmation of truth? Think about those two questions. Can you separate faith and works? And can faith be defined simply by a confessional affirmation of truth? James will answer these questions for us. We'll look at the first part of verse 18 under the heading of the anticipated objection, the anticipated objection based upon what was just stated in verses 14 through 17. I'll read that for us. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Based upon that, what was stated in 14 through 17, this is the anticipated objection to what was just stated. Verse 18a, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. You have faith and I have works. So this is a difficult verse to interpret because it deals with a quote. It deals with a quotation. It's complicated because you don't know where the quote ends. And why would you say that? Because in the original Greek text, there were no punctuation marks. Therefore, there are no quotation marks. So you know where the quote starts because in the text it says, but someone will say. So you expect someone to say something, a quote, but you don't know where it necessarily ends. It becomes an interpreter's decision based upon context and grammar to see where that quote ends. So just like they have these editing books for students where they're given paragraphs with no punctuations and then instructions that would state something like, in this paragraph you need six periods, two exclamation points, a semicolon, and provide three quotes, three sets of quotes. You can see that there are lots of different ways to make that paragraph flow, depending on the student, between, depending on how they're thinking, depending on even what they see in the, in, the, in the paragraph. So take, for example, just the two words, no, no, and problem. Together, it reads no problem. And you can see where I'm going with this. In other words, that's no big deal. It's not significant. It doesn't have much meaning No problem But if you add punctuation marks It can communicate something completely different Based upon what was just Communicated and in the, in the intent of what is being said if, if you add No Exclamation point Problem That's way different than no problem That's indicating that Stop Think about this This is significant This does matter You're about to make a decision that's going to impact a lot of people and change a lot of things And so you can see that we need to be good students and understand that punctuation marks are significant to understanding Scripture and the the meaning of scripture can be completely changed just by a set of quotation marks So let me give you three popular views that could work for verse 18 There's a lot more. I think these are the the best ones to consider And I will make an argument for which one I think fits best grammatically and contextually. So this will require looking down at your Bibles. One view is that this is saying, look down at verse 18, quote, you have faith, end quote. You have faith, question mark. You have faith, exclamation point. As if this is a sarcastic remark based on what was just stated in verses 14 to 17. So based upon what was just said, this person thinks they have a a saving faith when they have no works to prove it. And they, Paul, James gives this illogical illustration and picture of someone who's in great need, a Christian, a fellow brother, sister, and you just walk by and say, good wishes to you. Be warm, be filled. I'm not going to help you, but peace be with you from God. And then clearly does that person have faith without the works? Says it's being, it's dead. And so this is saying, quote, you have faith based upon what was just stated. You have faith. You really think you have saving faith based upon verses 14 and 17? It's a sarcastic remark based upon what was just stated. Another view is that this is saying, verse 18 again, quote, you have faith and I have works. Close quote. Where this, is, where this person is stating that you might have faith, but I have works. That's how the, if you have ESV, That's how the esv translates it. This claims that faith and works are two distinct gifts that can be separated So if you put the quotes You have faith and I have works This is saying that faith and works are two distinct gifts that can be separated There's another view third view That has it this way. Look down again verse 18 Quote You have faith and I have works show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works This is how the nasb translates it so this is presenting this person as an ally of james who's reiterating what james has just argued you have faith but no works i have works and he's saying you can't show me your faith without works that's impossible but i can show you my faith by my works that's the um, nasb how they translate translate it so which one should we go by Don't just believe what I say or my study in this passage take the time to look at it yourself Look at the context. If you know the greek a little bit, you can look at the grammar and see what it says But I would take the second view Where this is saying quote you have faith and I have works the separation of faith and works And why why do I say that? How did I come to that conclusion? because verse 18 begins with a strong adversative but but Which suggests that the view that james is about to quote is in disagreement with his own, which was verses 14 to 17, that a faith without works is dead. So this introduces an objection. This introduces an objection. Furthermore, the initial clause, but someone will say, in the New Testament is always always used to bring up an opposing voice. 1 Corinthians 15:35, for example, but someone will say, this is in the context of not believing in the resurrection. How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Again, in Romans 9, 19, translated a little bit differently, but it's the same thing. You will say to me then, Romans 9, on the the God's sovereign choice and choosing, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? These are objections to the resurrection. These are objections to God's sovereign salvation uh, election. So this is here again in James, beginning with that same initial clause, but someone will say, is an opposing voice. This is an objection. This person is saying, what now, James? What now? You say that faith without works is of no use. Verses 14 to 17. What about the person who says he has works, but no faith? What if this person says, but the person who says he has works, but no faith? James' response is, after the quote ends, show me. Show me your faith without the works, which again is impossible. You can't do that. And I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, you cannot separate those two. You cannot separate faith and works. You can't say, I've got faith and no works. And you also can't say, I've got works and no faith. Neither is authentic without the other. Do you think that God gives us faith that doesn't work? may it never be may it never be or do you think that god would be honored by our works if we don't have faith again may it never be hebrews 11:6 without faith it is impossible to please god and james 2:17 the the other side of that even so faith if it has no works is dead being by itself you cannot separate faith and works works being the fruit of genuine faith which is obedience and love for god I believe that's what is being communicated in verse first part of verse 18. Now James will continue to build his argument with scriptural truth, and next we'll look at the second half of verse 18 and verse 19, the revealing challenge, the revealing challenge. Verse 18 again, someone will say, quote, you have faith and I have works, close quote. Show me, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you, my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So if the quote ends, at, you have faith and I have works, and if it ends there, then what follows is James' revealing and challenging response to that objection. He says, show me then, show me. Show is, in an aorist, is an aorist active imperative verb and we'll come back to that. It means to make visible, to prove, to demonstrate, to make clear by evidence. James is saying, show me. James is saying, show me a life of holiness without works. And the point is that you can't. The point is that you can't. And when you break down this verb, it becomes clear. Errors tense. This points to something that happened in the past that impacts the present. Something that happened in the past that impacts the present. This is in the active voice, indicating that this is being lived out. This is being lived out through your actions. It's an imperative mood. This is non negotiable, non optional command from God that is to be in obedience to God. So through giving this command, James is saying and challenging this person who claims to have faith that you do not have a saving faith because there are no works to prove it. And on the flip side of that, this verb to show communicates that if your faith is a saving faith that happened in the past, it gives rise to the action that you're commanded to live out in the present. It will be demonstrated and lived out by your actions. It is the fitting response for what happened before. The gift of saving faith. In other words, you're saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. It is a faith that works in the display and living out of good works. You Can't separate those two. James ends verse 18, if you look down again, by saying, and I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you a living, an active, a saving, a useful faith. That is one that demonstrates the fruit of saving faith. Listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God. They say they know God, but by their deeds, by what they do, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. No one can demonstrate a saving faith without the works. What a challenging response because it's an impossible one. When when James says, show me, show me your faith without the works. And James is not done. He's not done. He continues to provide further proof of this. Faith is not just in what you say, but it's also not in just what you believe. Faith is not just in what you say, but it's also not in just what you believe. James compares the objector's faith to the faith of demons, which is also useless to show that a verbal profession that does not go beyond words or intellectual knowledge is also of no use. R. Kent Hughes, pastor and founder of Charles Simeon Trust, some of you guys might have heard of him. He says this, there's not a demon in the universe who is an atheist. Think about that. There's not a demon in the universe who is an atheist. They believe in the Trinitarian God. And James states that here. Verse 19. Look down at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. When it says that God is one, it speaks of the unity of the triune God. Three persons, one essence. Three persons, one essence. One will, one purpose, one plan. Indivisible. Inseparable in their operations. There's a divine simplicity that God is not made up of parts, but rather is perfectly and completely in the totality of his being, all of who he is. And so these persons are subsistences of the essence itself. One essence, three persons, signifying that God is one. And one thing alone distinguishes the persons or their eternal relations of origin, and that is the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit is spirated or proceeds from the Father and the Son. This belief in the triune God and the one true and living God is fundamental to Christianity. And in the Old Testament, it's found in what is called the Shema. Hear or listen in Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This declaration of the triune God. This is like the Jewish confession of faith that was prayed were recited in the morning and the evenings and even sometimes before bedtime. And remember that who James is addressing. He's addressing Jewish Christians who knew this, so they were very familiar with this teaching and this, this doctrine. This is stated again by Jesus in the New Testament in Mark chapter 12, where one of the scribes asked Jesus, "'What commandment is the foremost of all?' Jesus answered, "'The foremost is, "'Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord.'" You shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength The second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these And listen to first corinthians chapter 8 verses 4 through 6 Therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no god, but one for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Galatians 3, verse 20, simply states, God is one, where God is only one. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, for there is one God. One meteor also between God and men, the man, Christ, Jesus. The teaching of Scripture is clear that God is one. God is one. And James continues in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. And he says, you do well. You do well. That is right, and that is good for you to believe that. And this phrase draws our attention back to chapter 2, verse 8, if you look there. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well this is jesus summation of the law which is to love god and to love others and if they are living that out then they are doing well they're benefiting from that and here it is saying if you believe that god is one you do well but as we'll see this is talking as we'll see this is talking about merely an intellectual knowledge that is lacking one thing it's lacking love It's lacking love for God, thus demonstrating a false faith that is apart from works that please God. We know this from the following phrase, the demons also believe and shudder. If you truly believe in the God that is one, then you will love God with all your heart, soul, and might. The Shema continues, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one continues, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I'm, I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. It's not just the affirmation or the confessional affirmation of truth that God is one, but it says you shall demonstrate that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Proverbs 4, verse 23, for from the heart flow the springs of life. Matthew twelve thirty-four: for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Your words and works will reflect a transformed heart that loves and obeys God. And love is demonstrated through our obedience to God's word in daily life. Martin Luther has said, quote, Just as there is no fire without heat and smoke, so there is no faith without love. What is missing from this knowledge is love. Notice that it's not fear that saves either. Notice that it's not fear. That saves either You believe that god is one you do well the demons also believe and shudder You don't come to christ because you want to escape the judgment of god Yes, that is true And that sounds like great news for the sinner But you come to christ because you love christ So it's not even a fear of judgment that will bring you into the kingdom of god It's a love for who christ is what christ has done What you deserve. So it's not fear that saves you either. It says the demons also believe in shudder. The demons tremble. They tremble in fear of judgment. And this word translated shudder is only used here, shudder is only used here in the New Testament. And it refers to the reaction of fear or anger that is provoked by the presence of God. The reaction of fear or anger that is provoked by the presence of God, it means to bristle and tremble. This conveys the picture of terror or becoming infuriated that it causes the hair to stand on end. Think of of someone hiding behind a wall and jumping out at you to scare you, to shock you. You can be both scared and angry at the same time. You're scared because you didn't expect it and then at that same moment you could become very angry and punch them in the face. You're both scared and angry. Demons shudder at God's truth with great fear because they know. They know that eternal condemnation awaits them in hell and they react angrily they react angrily towards god as the demons shudder in fear of judgment because they have a knowledge of god but without a love for god so also should people whose verbal profession is without works but even worse are those with false faith who think they will escape the judgment of god even the demons aren't deceived about that even the demons aren't deceived about that the demons in Scripture even sound like some professing Christians. Listen to Mark chapter one, verses 23 and 26. There was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, "What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God." And Jesus rebuked him, saying, "Be quiet and come out of him." Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice. And came out of him. Matthew chapter 8, verses 29 through 31 says, Two demon possessed men cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know Jesus' power and judgment. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him. Again, they are acknowledging his power over them, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. Mark chapter 5, verse 7, speaking about a man with an unclean spirit, it says, And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Luke chapter 4, verse 41, Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. They knew him to be the Messiah, the Savior of sinners. Acts 19 verses 11 to 15. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, Jewish chief priests were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Mark, unclean clean spirit, acknowledges Jesus as the Holy One of God. Matthew, chapter 8, the demons call Jesus the Son of God. Mark, chapter 5, they call him the Son of the Most High God. Luke, chapter 4, the demons know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Acts 19, they are well aware of who Jesus is. James responds to this person who objects to a faith without works as being useless and dead and who objects to faith and works being inseparable And he says that even a confessional affirmation of truth if it is without works Without love and obedience from a heart towards god is also useless and dead You believe that god is one You believe that jesus is god. You believe that he is the messiah the savior of sinners you do well and then he says, the demons also believe and shudder. The point is that an intellectual knowledge of who God is does not save you. The demons know the truth about God and his word, but hate it. They are against God's will. They are not obedient to his word. They are very well, very well know the wrath of God. Now, some of us might not describe ourselves that way, but our, our lives may be demonstrating that verses 14 through 17, we learn that faith is more than just words. Verses 18 and 19, we learn that faith is more than just intellectual knowledge or an affirmation of truth or even an emotional response. Shuddering because they fear judgment but without a love for Christ. I don't want to go to hell so I will believe in Jesus. It's a regenerated heart and a renewed mind. It is a transformed life that's transformed by truth. It is love and willful obedience to God that responds to His word and that is evidenced by the fruit of our lives, because of the gospel, because true belief in Christ, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Real faith involves the heart. Real faith involves the heart. Romans 10, chapter verses nine and 10, states, "If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart." a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation.
1: Philippians 2,
0: verse 12. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. This is the believer's responsibility for the active pursuit of obedience in the process of sanctification. Work out your salvation, your sanctification with fear and trembling. This is an attitude that involves a healthy fear of offending God and a righteous awe and reverence for him. You don't want to offend God and you have this, this reverence for who he is. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Faith and works can never be separated. Faith and works can never be separated. Who or what are you placing your confidence in? Why do you think you have saving faith? Why do you think you have saving faith? Is it based on a profession that you made years ago? Maybe when you were younger? Is it based on knowledge? How much you know about God's word? Is it even based upon fear? Not a fear of God in in the way that Proverbs speaks of the fear of God in which we know who he is and we we stand in all of his power, majesty, and glory, but just based purely on a fear of hell and condemnation. Why do you think you have saving faith? Saving faith is evidenced by more than just what you say and by more than just intellectual knowledge, what you believe. This applies to all believers. This applies to every single one of us. And particularly for elders of the church. Why do I say that? Because elders of the church are to be above reproach. Above reproach. Examples of sanctification. Of transformed living. And we know that the qualifications of an elder are predominantly what? Not speaking ability. Not knowledge. Though we are to have a comprehensive knowledge of scripture and be able to teach. But the qualifications of an elder are highly focused on Christ-like character christ-like character and how is that displayed through our love and obedience to god through our love and obedience to god through our actions through our works that come from a heart that has been transformed by a genuine saving faith it will most likely be your character that disqualifies you and not what you say you believe and teach. For those who profess to be Christians, how we live matters. For those who profess to believe in Christ, how you live absolutely matters. It's not just what you say. It's not even what you believe. But how you live that out matters before God. God sees and knows all things. Do you have a transformation? Do you love Jesus Christ? And we can state those questions in a, in a way that's presently speaking to us. Are you loving Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Christ? We may have at one point said we love Christ, we trust in Christ, but the Christian life is a progressive one that continues to believe that with great conviction. Are you trusting in Christ? each and every day? Are you loving Christ? Are you being obedient to Christ? This is a continually present, habitual practice, evident pattern and lifestyle for the Christian. A transformed life is a set-apart life, set-apart life, distinct from the world life, unto obedience to God for his glory. What makes us different is our obedience to God. And that is seen through our love and our actions and how we speak. It only comes from having a new heart by the Spirit of God and therefore a new desire and a new will and affections to obey God and please God and worship God and do all that we do for His glory. And our obedience is motivated by God's love for us and consequently our love for Him. True saving faith is in Christ. True saving faith is in Christ. He's the object of our faith. Our faith is in him, in who he is, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his finished work upon the cross, in his ascension, in his return, in his promises. Saving faith is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not in yourself or in your works. There's nothing you can do to make yourself worthy of God's love. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can not You can only repent. You can only place your faith and trust in the finished work of jesus christ on the cross in order to be saved now i know james is focusing on the christian life which is evidenced by good works but i want to shift it back to salvation how are you saved you're saved by god by his grace by his mercy through the work of christ do you believe christ came to this earth being fully god fully man that he lived the perfect life in obedience to god's law that he went willingly and obediently to the cross to obey his father's will for him, that he knew exactly what he was doing, paying the penalty for the sins of those who would repent and believe in him, that he's paying the full wrath of God on their behalf and that he was buried. Three days later, he rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death, that he did that for you. Do you believe that? repent and believe in christ place your faith in him and in him alone and you will be saved it is through our faith validating works in obedience and love for god that assurance is granted to us a lot of us struggle with assurance and usually we look to our own works to determine our assurance am i doing enough is my heart in the right place when I'm performing these works? John MacArthur has said, quote, every true Christian has times of unfaithfulness, sin, and barrenness. It is during those times that he is in danger of losing assurance of salvation. He's not saying losing your salvation, danger of losing assurance of salvation for the blessing of peace and confidence from the spirit is forfeited. Security of salvation is eternal and permanent being based on the Lord's sovereign power to keep those who belong to him. But assurance of salvation is temporal and can fluctuate, for it is a blessing granted to those who are obedient to the Lord. Your assurance depends upon your obedience to the Lord. That you know, without a doubt, that your faith is in the finished work of Christ upon the cross, that you are saved eternally, You're eternally secure in christ But the assurance in the living out of the daily christian life comes through That saving faith being validated through Your heart of love for god, which will demonstrate itself through the display of works In obedience to the lord And ephesians 2 verse 10 We don't boast in those things We know that god prepared those things beforehand that we would walk in them We're empowered by the spirit of God, given the word of God to guide and direct our steps. God's spirit is working upon us. God's word is a blessing to us. The body of Christ, the church, is an encouragement to us to bear our burdens, to walk alongside us, to lift us up when we're down, to pray for us. Christ is interceding for us eternally. We'll never be be forsaken by the Lord. We hold on to these promises. We trust in, our, in who Christ is, that he died for us. And we live obedient lives to demonstrate that we love him, that we want to please him, that we've been bought with a price. We are his slaves. We are his servants. Not, these aren't burdensome things. These are a joy and a delight. And so we must look to Christ and continue to look to Christ and then look to Christ some more, the object of our faith. And then the more we will want to follow Christ as we behold him and learn more about him and see how precious and glorious he is, we will want to follow him and know him and live for him and worship him. And the more we follow him and know him and live for him and worship him, guess what? The more you will become like him and the more everything and everyone around us will be impacted by our love and obedience to him and our testimony in this world. Imagine how many Christians are in this world who believe that they are saved without works. Imagine the testimony that they're giving to this world. It's mocking the gospel and its power to save. We must have a full understanding of the relationship between faith and works and proclaim the full understanding and the whole counsel of God when it comes to faith and works. This will allow the Christian to mature and be sanctified, or it will reveal to the Christian or to the non-Christian that they need Jesus Christ, that they can't do it on their own, that they must place their faith in him and turn away from their sins in order to be saved from the wrath of God and in order to live a life that is pleasing to God, that is obedient to God. And so are you living a transformed life? Do you have the proper understanding of faith and works? Do you love God? James says, verses 14 to 17, what use is it? And he asked that question twice. What use is a faith without works? It's useless and it's dead. Next week we'll begin verse 20. Again, he will ask, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? James' teaching is very, very clear. Faith without works is useless. But we must also understand that James points us to Christ. This is meant to draw our attention to who Christ is and to place our faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals our hearts, it exposes us, it lays us bare. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes deeper down to the intentions and thoughts and our motives. Father, I pray that this message would be one where your truth through James would be absolutely clear in our minds and our understanding that it would allow us to evaluate how we are living, how we are speaking, evaluate our our love for you, our love for others, and to see if this faith that we say we have is without works. And to know that there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we aren't saved by our works, but that we are saved by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, upon the cross on our behalf. So I pray that this, this understanding of faith and works, knowing that it's inseparable, knowing that it is only through your grace and mercy that we're saved, and also that because of your grace and mercy, we will now live obedient, fruit-bearing lives for your glory, that these things will be complemented together, that it would encourage our hearts, and that would point us to your Son, that we may seek to know him even more. I pray this in his name. Amen.